my patients have required it, and I'm sure yours have as well. Non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy. It happens. Historically, I learned that you avoided a general surgical procedure in the first trimester because of the fear of the increased risk of miscarriage. And you surely didn't want to do it in the third trimester unless it was absolutely urgent because of the risk of preterm labor and preterm birth. And so the best time to do this historically was taught to be the second trimester. But is that accurate? Is that still true? Well, based on current evidence, the answer is no. So in this episode, we're going to cover the data on non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy and put down some of the myths that unfortunately are still around but are not evidence-based. This review is also a summary of the maintenance of certification article on non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy. So if you're doing your MOC, get ready because we just may answer the four questions required for your MOC. A critical review of current evidence does not support the historical context or theory that surgery in the first trimester is linked to an increased rate of loss and surgery in the third trimester is linked to an increased rate of preterm birth. When the data is critically reviewed, spontaneous pregnancy loss in the first trimester and preterm birth in the third trimester happens at the same rate as patients who have the same medical condition even without surgery. Now let's start out with some numbers. Remember that non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy isn't rare. It happens in about 1-2% to of all pregnancies. Now, the most common type of surgery performed in pregnancy outside of an obstetrical indication is gastrointestinal surgery. So remember that, especially for the MOC. Gastrointestinal surgery is the most common type of surgery performed during pregnancy at about 45%. And this is typically either an appendectomy or cholecystectomy. This is followed by frequency by orthopedic procedures, which occur about 24% of the time. Well, if this doesn't apply anymore, where did this theory actually come from about avoiding surgery in the first and third trimester? Well, many of these older studies contain data from women undergoing surgery many decades ago when diagnostic testing, surgical techniques, and peri-op maternal fetal care were very different. Now, although the desire to expand published series by the inclusion of older data is understandable, given the relatively no numbers of these procedures in any one center, the relevance of such data, especially when it's old to current practice, is obviously questionable. As this review article states, one of the most important issues to remember when looking at past surgical data is that any study must be analyzed in the context of an appropriate control group. Cosmetic surgery aside, all surgeries performed as a result of the presence of significant underlying disease, much of which is itself known to be associated with those complications of pregnancy. So comparisons of the outcomes of women undergoing an indicated surgical procedure must be balanced and compared to women who have the same condition but who don't have surgery. We will review spontaneous loss in the first trimester and preterm birth a little bit more in detail in just a moment. But that's the general take-home message. When surgical cases are compared to women who have the equal medical condition but who have surgery delayed, the rates of those morbidities, spontaneous loss, and preterm birth are actually similar between patients who have surgical intervention and those who do not. 
as we're talking about surgical interventions, we have to say something about anesthetic agents because patients often have concern about the use of anesthetics and the safety of their children. None of the commercially available agents used for general anesthesia, and that includes propofol, ketamine, or succinylcholine, has proven to be teratogenic in humans. So, the choice of anesthetic agent should be based on standard anesthetic considerations. The placental transfer of neuromuscular blocking agents is minimal, and such agents are widely utilized for direct fetal injection and paralysis during fetal surgical procedures without any known ill effects. Nitrous oxide is associated with unique theoretical concerns as a result of its inhibition of methionine synthesis activity and its potential effects on DNA production and myelin deposition. However, despite being a staple for more than 75,000 non-obstetrical surgical procedures performed annually during pregnancy in the U.S. and some enthusiasm for its use during labor, Actual detrimental clinical effects of nitrous oxide on the developing human fetus have yet to be demonstrated. So what does ACOG say about this? Well, ACOG says, quote, no currently available anesthetic agents have been shown to have any teratogenic effect in humans when used as a standard concentration at any gestational age, end quote. It must be said, though, that despite the relative safety of general anesthesia during pregnancy, a regional anesthetic approach is preferable when feasible to reduce the known increased risk of aspiration during pregnancy, as well as the potential of neonatal depression if the child requires urgent delivery while the mother is under general anesthesia. However, general anesthesia will often be required and in skilled hands can be generally performed without complication or fear of teratogenesis at any gestational age. All right, let's come back and talk about the risk of miscarriage in the first trimester in the general population compared with those undergoing surgery. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The risk of miscarriage in the first trimester in the general population is about 25 to 30 percent, with the risk decreasing to about 8 to 10 percent once the pregnancy is recognized clinically. Because awareness of early pregnancy and of subsequent loss in a woman undergoing pregnancy is enhanced under the near universal performance of a pregnancy test on women of reproductive age who are going through surgery, the perceived relative rate of miscarriage among women undergoing surgery may be inflated. Whether the most appropriate available control group for assessing the risk of surgery during early pregnancy is the actual loss rate of 25 to 30 percent or the 8 to 10 percent among clinically recognized pregnancy, here's a clinical pearl. The reported loss rate of 10 percent among women undergoing surgery in the first trimester strongly supports the conclusion that rates of early pregnancy loss are not significantly increased by surgery during the first trimester of pregnancy. Remember, regarding preterm birth, 
Traditionally, surgery during the third trimester was avoided because of the, quote, increased risk of preterm labor. However, the data doesn't actually support that. While evidence does support that surgical interventions, because of the change in the physiology of the patient and physiological stress, while there may be an increase in preterm contractions, there does not seem to be an increase in actual preterm birth. Remember also, especially, that as the pregnancy advances, there's an increase in spontaneous contractions anyway. In the largest available systematic review, the rate of preterm birth was only 8.2% compared with the rate of preterm birth in the general OB population in the U.S. of 10 to 12% that women with an acute and potentially life-threatening superative intra-abdominal process would have a higher rate of preterm labor and delivery than the well-woman population, of course, is not unexpected. So for patients, for example, who have an appendicitis, the risk of preterm birth is actually elevated, not necessarily because of the surgical intervention, but because of the pathology, the medical condition itself. The additional contribution of a curative operative procedure to this rate of preterm birth is actually speculative and, in the opinion of the authors of this CME review, highly doubtful. Well, what are we supposed to do with this information? Well, it's all about patient education and counseling. The patient who presents with an acute condition in the first trimester, like acute cholecystitis or appendicitis, has an increased risk of loss inherent to that morbid medical condition. And regarding preterm birth, that inherent medical condition or complication of pregnancy can itself raise a risk of preterm birth. However, the influence of surgery on that risk is likely to be very small because the issue at hand is the medical condition rather than the surgical intervention itself. All right, when we come back, we're going to answer the question that always is brought up for a non-obstetrical surgery in pregnancy, and that's regarding external fetal monitoring. When I trained, I was taught that the reason to do external fetal monitoring during a pregnant general surgical procedure is to know when to intervene in case the baby experienced significant bradycardia or abnormal fetal heart tracing. However, while external fetal monitoring is definitely still recommended, the indication is actually broader than that because there are ways to resuscitate the child outside of an emergency C-section. So let's be clear. Two questions should be asked during any general surgical procedure on a pregnant woman. Number one, is there a significant risk for intraoperative maternal hypotension or hypoxia? And second, is continuous electronic fetal heart rate tracing just technically feasible during the surgery? That's it. There's no question about gestational age. According to the college, if the answer to these questions is in the affirmative, meaning yes, then intraoperative fetal monitoring is generally warranted. Once again, according to the authors of the CME review, external fetal monitoring isn't just for a stat C-section if the baby tends to go south, but it tends to be a fetal monitor, another vital sign showing potential compromise or hypoxia which needs to be corrected, and there's ways to do that outside of a crash C-section. According to this article, quote, We note that the achievement of a gestational age in which delivery might be considered need not be an essential prerequisite to intraoperative monitoring. 
intraoperative fetal compromise as evidenced by a fetal heart rate pattern suggesting hypoxia has been detected and corrected with non-surgical manipulation of maternal oxygen delivery or hemodynamic support systems that helps that fetal heart rate tracing resolve. Remember that the recommendation for external fetal monitor is the same whether the surgery is laparoscopic or laparotomy. But there's two specific kind of surgeries that this review article calls out specifically because the potential risk for hypoxia to the child. The first is neurosurgical interventions and the second is cardiothoracic surgery. Neurosurgery is often performed with the patient in the prone position. Thankfully, it's actually been shown that the systolic-diastolic ratio of umbilical artery blood flow actually decreases with the patient in prone position. This means that it actually has a positive effect on the position of uterine blood flow. The biggest concern with neurosurgery is that neurosurgical procedures often include a hypotensive anesthetic technique to get that procedure done. And this hypotensive anesthetic technique can put the fetus in significant harm of neurological injury because of fetal hypoperfusion and hypoxia. And this is something that has a fetal risk that cannot be reliably mitigated because it's part of the procedure. In addition, emergent cesarean delivery during such neurosurgical procedures is particularly fraught with technical difficulties, and that can seriously jeopardize the mother as well. So when hypotensive techniques are deemed essential for maternal health and surgery cannot be safely delayed, here's the clinical pearl. Delivery before the operation is often a better choice despite significant prematurity. Now, regarding cardiothoracic surgery, the use of cardiopulmonary bypass poses specific challenges with respect to fetal perfusion and oxygenation, and it's been reported that fetal mortality rates can be up to 30%. In cases in which cardiopulmonary bypass is required, the shortest possible period of mild hypothermic or nomothermic perfusion with a strategy of high-flow, high-pressure perfusion has been recommended. Maternal acid-based monitoring is crucial during this time. And of course, during cardiopulmonary bypass, fetal monitoring may help guide adjustments to pump perfusion parameters. And if required, then C-section can be performed, again, if the gestational age is allowable. All right, podcast listeners, we're almost done, but we can't end without reviewing a brief section on diagnostic images because diagnostic images are sometimes part of the pre-op workup. Now, let's talk about dosimetry. There are two classes of radiation effects, deterministic and stochastic. Remember, if you're doing your MOC, you may want to pay attention to this part. Deterministic effects include malformations, growth restriction, intellectual disability, microcephaly, and death. These complications result from damage to multiple cells. However, stochastic effects result from damage to a single cell. So remember the S in stochastic and S, the single cell. These are effects that can later lead to carcinogenesis. Exposure to high doses of radiation, like 5 or 10 rads, during the first two weeks after conception is thought to be an all-or-none deterministic phenomenon, resulting in either fetal death or no effect. But because most organogenesis takes place between week 2 and 8 after conception, fetal anomalies would be potentially affected by very high doses of radiation, like greater than 20 rads during this time frame. 
Remember also that there has been reported an increased lifetime risk of leukemia that's about twofold with the use of ionizing radiation at about one to two rads. Again, there is about a twofold risk of leukemia of about one to two rads with a background risk of the disease of about one in 3,000. The Radiological Society of North America states that no deterministic effect is expected to occur at dosages less than 10 rads and no stochastic effects are noted at less than 2 to 5 rads. Now, fortunately, virtually all pertinent radiographic procedures are associated with fetal exposures far below these levels. Even nuclear imaging scans, which technically use either xenon-133 or technetium 99 possess much less exposure during these procedures. Of course, nuclear imaging is typically done as part of a ventilation perfusion scan to rule out PE during pregnancy. We have to remember the difference here between a rad and a milligray. Remember that, for example, two rads is the same thing as 20 milligray. In other words, it's a tenfold difference. And five rads is the same as 50 milligray. And finally, as we wrap up the podcast, a quick word about some potential fetal dose exposure of radiation based on certain kinds of study. For example, the abdominal CT scan has about a 1.5 to 35 milligray exposure. Again, that's an abdominal CT has a 1.5 but up to 35 milligray, which is about a 3.5 rad exposure. A pelvic CT, however, carries a 10 to 50 milligray potential fetal exposure. And remember, fetal exposure also has a lot to do with the maternal BMI. But at a pelvic CT potential fetal exposure of 10 to 50 milligray, that's about 1 to 5 rads. Now, a PET-CT whole body syndograph has, again, about 10 to 50 milligray exposure, still about the 1 to 5 rads. But if you take into account a nuclear medicine study, like a low-dose perfusion scintigraphy, then that potential exposure to the child is only 0.1 to 0.5 milligray. Non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy. It happens. We have summarized and highlighted key aspects of the maintenance of certification February 2020 article from the MOC list. Thanks for being part of our podcast listener family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.